Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying healthy, happy, and safe. It's a big show, so let's not mess around. Let's get right at it. Later on, we're going to meet an author named Barbara Lazzo Nadeau. She is the correspondent at large for The Daily Beast and the author of a fascinating new book called The Godmother about the rise of women in the mafia. That's a little bit later on. First, though, let's meet Nuella Charles. This year, the SoCound Foundation announced Nuella as the winner of the second annual Her Music Awards. She has amassed over 4 million career streams to date and has almost 800,000 total YouTube worldwide views. Now, her self-titled album is available on all streaming platforms, so that's wherever you legally download and buy music. This is join me via zoom so i'm going to set the stage a little bit here i want to go back a little ways so people can get to know you a little bit here so tell me a little bit about how you first got interested in music you've lived all over the world uh when did music become one of the real touchstones for you honestly as far back as i can remember music has always just kind of been in the house like my dad had his acoustic guitar he knew like one blues lick and he would play it over and over again. <laughs> um, we had, you know, Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey, like, vinyl records. Um, and it was just something always there. And as a teenager, when, you know, I'm dating myself now, but, like, TRL was, like, super massive. <laughs> Much music was massive. And I started seeing, like, you know, Avril Lavigne, Fifi Dobson, Michelle Branch, like, all of these really cool women who were playing their own instruments, writing their songs. And I was like, if they can do it, I can do it. And so that's kind of what fueled my desire to want to write and play instruments. And all through high school, I was teaching myself guitar. And, you know, we had this old like refurbished Mac MacBook and I was learning how to record and write songs. They were not good at all, but it was like <laughs> that ability to do it myself and to be really hands-on really helped like fuel the fire. You have and, to start somewhere, even oh, if it's on honest, an old yeah. refurbished, you know, Mac. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, definitely. And it just was like, you know, this is doable. It was never something that was out of reach, you know, mm -hmm. as, as much as my parents would be like, maybe you go to school for <laughs> it was never something that they were like, never, you know, like, so it was, yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you spent your upbringing uh, all over the place, really. I mean, you grew up in Kenya, Switzerland, uh, Canada, the Bahamas. Would you say that any or all of these places had an influence on your sound? Is there one particular place? I don't think it was any particular place. I think it was just the ability or I guess the the fact that we traveled so much and the the way that my worldview shifted and it was a, it went from this very like narrow of like I only know, you know, I was born in Kenya so I don't really remember it. And then Switzerland, we I was there up until after kindergarten, so that's all I knew. And then kind of taking me out of that world, plopping me in Canada and being like, "Now you got to learn English." <laughs> <laughs> you know and being and mind you we lived on a cattle ranch so it was like such a different um life to begin with like yeah. out of the city very much rural and then from that to the bahamas where it's like 
you know, a lot of different cultural people from what we experienced in, in uh, Williams Lake, BC. Right. And so it was just like, my mind was very open and I was very um, good at accepting new things and change was always something I looked forward to. Um, and so I think that shapes the music. Um, I'm not afraid to pull from, you know, other worlds like jazz, pop, rock, R&B, whatever it may be. And I, I think that really helps just allow me to be more free in what I do. And I'm not really pigeonholed into a genre or, you know, a certain style of music. Do you think that being on the cattle farm, which you say was remote, uh, probably wasn't a great deal to do there. It wasn't like you could just go to a movie around the corner or whatever it is that, that, that kids do. Do you think that it made you, uh, figure out ways to entertain yourself and music probably filled part of that hole because you could actually, you know, pick up a guitar and play or, or write a song or something like that. Do you think that had anything to do with it? Oh, hundred percent. Like we would, especially during the summers, it's like, okay, go outside. <laughs> Don't come back till dinner, <laughs> you know? And so we would like ride our horses around or like make our own little theater shows or pretend we're hiking through whatever. Like, you know, it was very much go out and entertain yourself. Um, which, you know, to this day is like, I don't think I'm ever really bored. I'm very much content in my own, like by myself, um, because I always keep myself entertained. And even my mom's just like during the pandemic, she's like, man, you're really good by yourself. <laughs> Watch your Instagrams and you're laughing <laughs> like alone. I'm like, yeah, because it's like I am comfortable in my skin. And I think just growing up that way, it's like you just learn what you like and what you don't like. And it definitely, yeah, I think it definitely helps. You're listening to Noella Charles on The Richard Krause Show. Her self-titled album is now available wherever you buy fine music. Well, and I think the way you create music is fairly solitary as well, right? You you said, now people can't see at home. This is on the radio. But you've got a lot of recording equipment behind you. I can yeah. see there's uh, guitars. It looks like a bass guitar and a, yeah. a six-string uh, next to you. So are, are you someone that will just sit there and noodle away, work on on a song by yourself uh, or do you uh, look for collaboration in other ways? Yeah, no, definitely. When I started, it was all very solo, very insular. Like I would write on my acoustic or piano. Um, and the first record was all like that. And then I started delving into co-writing with other people and other songwriters and that opened up a whole world. And I, I learned a lot during that, uh, during those sessions. And it's just, so inspiring and you're sitting there and the end goal is just to create this amazing song mm -hmm. um and i've kind of reverted back to with this latest album like writing solo and like at least starting it on my own and really getting the point across to what i want to say and then bringing it to my producer and being like here's the song or here's like a nugget of the song like let's build upon it and he was so awesome and just letting me explore and create by myself and then bringing it to him where I think a lot of people would rather start together, finish together. But he's like, no, like, what do you want to say? Like, dive into that and figure that out and then we can build on it. So, I, yeah. I do think that gives you uh, and your work a greater sense of individuality uh, and it and it is, you know, sprouted from your imagination. Always great to have a second pair of eyes or ears on it, uh, but it it has to be your thing. And I think that it sounds different when you perform a song that is personal to you in that way. It sounds different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. I feel that way too. And I've always tried to do something different than the last thing I did. It's always 
like how do I build upon who knew well at Charles is as an artist and sonically and I think when I'm just sitting by myself it allows you know I'm not worried about what the co-writer is thinking or what the producer in the room is thinking it just allows me to get all the ideas out and then we can flush it you know flush through them through uh, at the end so yeah definitely do you want audiences to think of you as a songwriter, as a singer, as a musician, or is it just like a big, one big ball of, of everything <laughs> that you hope people will grasp onto? I mean, honestly, I, I like the word artist because it's kind of all encompassing, but I, I am a songwriter at the core. And I think, um, uh, you know, when, I mean, the general public might look at a female artist and think they're just given songs. And it's like, here's a song, sing it, perform it, you know, thank you very much. But I want to know, I want them to know that I do write my music. I do like play instruments. <laughs> you know, I have that ability. Um, and just because you might not see me doing it on stage, doesn't mean that's not part of who I am as an artist. And so I think, you know, being well-rounded in that, I'm really proud of, and I want to be recognized as such. What advice would you give to younger people who would like to uh, pursue a career path similar to yours? <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. no, it's funny because my brother, my younger brother, he <laughs> just turned 18 or he's turning 19. And he asked me point blank, like, would, like, how would you, would you go to school for music or what would you do? And it was like, well, what is your end goal? Like, what do you want to be doing? If, it, if you want to be an artist, you just got to start. You got to start playing shows. They might not be the most glamorous, but you got to get out there in front of people, hone your skill, hone your craft, start writing with other artists or songwriters. Um, and then just really get to understand the business side of things, because that's very important. And, you know, when the time comes for you to bring people onto your team, you'll be more prepared. Um, and then also my biggest thing that I've always said is like, don't quit. Just because something's not clicking off in the first year or two or three, like I'm on year 10 <laughs> and I'm just finally, I think, settling into what I sound like and who I am and what I want the world to see. So it is very important to keep going and persevere if this is truly what you want, because, you know, once you stick to it and you're in it, people will gravitate towards you. And I think it's really important to understand that. And I think not to expect overnight success, because mm. what we think is overnight is like at least 10 years in the making, you know? <laughs> so that's always one thing I try to to get across is like, you just got to do it to do it and not to expect something, you know, massive on the other end. So I read an interview with you in Canadian Beats and you talk about misconceptions that people have about you based on the fact that you are a woman of color. What do you think uh, those misconceptions are and what changes do you hope to see in the Canadian music industry that could help uh, eliminate those kind of roadblocks, I guess, or misconceptions? Yeah, totally. I think the first and like foremost is, you know, oh, you're a black woman in music. You must make R&B or soul. <laughs> and, you know, and yes, to an extent, a lot of my music has that influence. But as, you know, I've gone through the last 10 years, it's like I'm making pop music like it is the same as what like Adele or Sam Smith would do but because they are you know white that theirs is pop music and mine is R&B and soul and so it was like 
I've been not really fighting, but really making a stance of not submitting myself into categories that are deemed like strictly R&B and soul. And I made that conscious effort like a couple of years ago to be like, no, this is a pop record, you know? And so if it's not going to get nominated for a pop record, that's cool, but it's a pop record, you know? And so just really making sure that people are aware that just because I'm of a certain heritage or background does not mean that I'm relegated to this corner of the industry. You know, it is we're multifaceted people just like everyone and you know i love alternative rock music like that is my jam and i might not be able to do do that on stage because it's not really it wouldn't make sense for me like i love it like to my core but to perform <laughs> it is just not it's not who i am as an artist but i love bringing in elements like the electric guitar will always be there um, I'll always have some kind of solo <laughs> in there. Like, it's just those kind of things where it's like, don't relegate a group of people based on how they look like into, you know, your perception of what they should be doing. You know, everyone is able to do anything. Is that the advice that you would give to aspiring black artists? I know it's, we talked about just general advice in general, mm-hmm. but, but, but this is a slightly different situation, I think, and one that you have a lived experience in. Yeah, I think so. I mean, like there's, I mean, now, especially with the, you know, the coming back of the emo rock and emo pop kind of in popular music, which, you know, we went through that years yeah. ago. So now it's coming back and, you know, Willow Smith is a great example. Like she is part of, one of the biggest black American families yeah. in the world. And she's doing rock music, like I heart, did, like, you know, and she's like, killing did you it. see the videos from yeah. the, the recent uh, festival? Yeah. She played? That was wild. Yeah. And so it's like, she's just owning it. She's like, no, this is what I love. This is who I am as an artist and I'm going to do it. And I think that kind of fearlessness is what we need. Like we can't be, you know, afraid to, you know, turn heads because at the end of the day, like if we go back, black people created rock and roll music. Like that's just a fact. You're listening to Noella Charles on the Richard Krause show. Her self-titled album is now available wherever you buy fine music. So for us to sit there and be like, no, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to do this. It's kind of funny to me. So we really just have to own who we are. And that's in any, like any person from anywhere in the world, like if you love something, just do it. Like, don't worry about what people think because at the end of the day, they're going to come around and be like, yeah, you were right. (laughs) Well, that speaks to a a fearlessness as that you have as an artist. And I think that that's probably uh, reflected in the song Awakening, which is one of the new songs. Uh, It's about a woman who's waking up to her power. Uh, Tell me how you came up with that idea, that concept for the song. Yeah, I mean, the song started very much as like a down tempo kind of vibe. And my producer was like, we can amp this up a bit. (laughs) And so the verses all stayed the same, but the chorus is what really shifted. And I think as the music came together, I just felt very empowered. Um, And the story like in the verses is all about someone who is kind of just dimming themselves for the benefit of others. And I was like, how do you come out of this? And it's like an awakening and kind of uh reimagination of who you could be and i love that idea of like a flower blooming and waking up in, in like in the morning and you know opening up to the world and so that's kind of where that came from and i mean why not like i think as a woman we take on so many roles in society and like societal pressures where it's like okay well we're the strongest being that i know. i mean i feel like 
And so the tagline, like nothing stronger than a woman was just like kind of bold to say for me as like an introverted kind of shy, <laughs> like trying not to ruffle any feathers, but still being like, no, this is my truth. I got to say it. And my producer was just amazing. He was like, yeah, no, that works. <laughs> and your songs have been used on big time television shows and, you know, they're getting a lot of exposure that way it must kind of blow your mind a little bit when you're watching a big network television show and your song is used. Oh, it's still amazing every time. <laughs> and I think just the way that they use music that I might not have thought of, like, right. and yeah. And when I write, I always have a visual of like, how would this look like in a film or right. a commercial or whatever, but to actually see them piece it together and sometimes like really chop the song up to fit the scene right. is so, so fun. So fun. So you're not precious about that kind of thing. Some artists would be like, no, you play the whole song or nothing. No, yeah. <laughs> no I'm not. Like uh, one song was used uh, on the Basketball Wives, oh, yeah. Los Angeles, a finale. And they chopped it up and like used the string uh, orchestral piece as like the in-between of the dialogue. And it was mm. so much drama. And I just loved it so <laughs> much. <laughs> Uh, and what keeps you every day going back to this little music setup I see behind you and making music every day? I think, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I'm very much an introverted person and being and being on stage is like my release and I love it so much. And I think being able to tell my stories in a way that resonates with people, but is also universal. Mm. Um is such a massive thing for me. And, you know, I'm not really a public speaker or, you know, you know, very out, out like forward with how I feel on things, but I'm able to put them in songs. And I think that's such a massive thing for me. And it's such a great medium to get across an emotion that I might be feeling, even if no one hears it ever, I still got it out. And that's great. That's my journal entry for the day, you know? It's so, cathartic for you. Oh, 100%. And it's just, yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's a gift to be able to create something out of nothing. Um, and I just want to keep doing it until I can't anymore. That was Nuella Charles on The Richard Krause Show. Her self-titled album is available now. My guest in this segment is Barbie Latza Nadeau. She has worked as the Rome Bureau Chief for Newsweek magazine and currently holds that position for the Daily Beast. She is an on-air contributor for CNN and a writer for Scientific American. She is also a true crime novelist with The Godmother, Murder, Vengeance, and the Bloody Struggle of Mafia Women, a new book that takes the reader into the little-known role of the women that underpin Italy's most ruthless mob family. Publishers Weekly calls it a must-read for true crime fans, and it is a great read. Check this out. In 1955, in a public market outside Naples, Italy, a pregnant teenage widow named Assunta Pupetta Maresca encounters a man that she believes to be her husband's killer. Minutes later, police find the man dead, riddled with an astonishing 29 bullets. Pupetta is arrested and convicted for his death. I killed for love, she says in court. And I'd do it again. Barbie Latza Nadeau fills in the rest of the story as she joins me via Zoom from Rome. What makes Santa Popeta Marquesca so chillingly compelling as a character in the book? I, I think because she was so human when I met her, 
Um, you know, I, I sat with her many, many times in her house in Southern Italy. And what made her so compelling to me was the fact that I liked her. She's a killer. She's a liar. She's all these sorts of things. She had an incredible past. She did horrible things. She wasn't sorry for any of it, but she was so nice. And, and I think that that's, that's what makes a lot of the women in the book compelling is that they're human on some level. And while that doesn't, I don't want to glorify organized crime and murder, um, the people who get caught up in organized crime are often, you know, it's not a choice and they are human beings. And you did not feel at all like you were being manipulated, like you were being given uh, a, a public face because she knew that you were going to be writing about her? Oh, for sure. I think she lied to me a lot. And in fact, every single thing she told me, I tried to go check because, you know, she's got a criminal history. And so there's there are criminal dossiers or lawyers or prosecutors. Yeah. And many, many times she would tell me something and I would go check and it would be an outright lie. And then I would think, OK, so do I call her on it or do I ask her the question again next time? It was kind of like a game. One, she's an old lady by then, yeah. um, by the time I talked to her. But but she was it was all orchestrated sort of it was she she choreographed everything but in doing so she showed me scrapbooks of the you know of the of the clippings of her the crime people wrote about her she showed me her wedding scrapbook so she showed me the human side of her too mm. all the while she's telling me you know you don't understand the mafia you don't understand you don't understand organized crime because you're american because blah 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 so but she she was a human being at the end of it and what was her reaction when you first approached her? I would guess that someone who has kept scrapbooks of <laughs> clippings of all their mentions, and let's be real, the mentions are about court cases and murders and all that sort of thing, probably was flattered that you wanted to talk to her. Yeah, but she wanted money because now she she tried to monetize everything and her daughter very much tried to monetize things. And I said, and I convinced her, I, I, you know, she was lived in this horrible little town on the, near the Amalfi coast, which should be beautiful, but in fact, it wasn't. Um, and I, I found out where she lived through a police contact I had. And so I went to her coffee bar because everybody has a coffee bar in Italy. You always go to the same coffee bar. And I started running into her there and uh, making a conversation. And I would say, oh, I read about you. You know, I'm an American journalist. And was, I speak Italian. So it was easy enough. And then... And, and I said, she said, oh, I don't want to do interviews anymore. Oh, I don't do any interviews anymore. People have to pay me a lot to do interviews. And, and I sort of stalked her, you know, in a sense, and convinced her that as an American writing about her, no Americans have ever written about her before. North America doesn't know about you, Pupetta. You know, um, give me a chance. Let's just have a conversation. And then she got really into it. Then she was... Then she would, then she was like, tell the Americans this, tell the North Americans this, you know, then she was, then she wanted it. So she chose fame over money. Yeah. Because I, I imagine that there is an ethical line that you can't cross in terms of paying people for their stories in this sense. That's right. I mean, I don't work for a tabloid and this is a book. And so I would never pay for someone for an interview. It, it, there was one person in the book I paid as like you'd pay a fixer. Like say I go to Greece and I don't speak the language. I would pay a fixer to take me around. And there was a woman in Naples who was able to take me into some of these criminal homes and things like that. And I don't speak Neapolitan dialect. So um, in that sense, I, I paid her just like I would hire an assistant. But but I, I know you can't pay for an interview like that. Otherwise, it's it's 
you know, then they have some ownership in it. Then it's a then it's a business deal. It's not an interview. It's not journalistically ethical, I don't think. You're listening to Barbie Latsonado on The Richard Krause Show. Her book, The Godmother, Murder, Vengeance, and the Bloody Struggle of Mafia Women is available now wherever fine books are sold. Is there a fearlessness that you need to do this kind of work? I When I hear uh, the word fixer, I understand what it means, but it, it feels to me like you have to have, uh, you know, a, a fair amount of courage to approach these people. You say, you know, you stalk, you know, well, you stalked uh, your, your, your subject of this book. So there's, there's lots of, of, of elements to this, but is there a fearlessness involved? I think there's probably more of a stupidity involved than a fearlessness because there were so many times in the book where I thought, oh my gosh, I got this interview. I can't wait to go. And then I would do stupid things like think, oh, I better not take my phone with me because I don't want it to get stolen. I better not have my ID with me, you know, stupid stuff like that. And then I'd find myself in these situations thinking, one, nobody knows where I am because I would never tell my kids like where I could be something risky. I have have two, uh, you know, 20, uh, 20, 22 year old sons. Um, They would have been horrified to know I was doing it. My friends who aren't journalists would have been thought I was an idiot. So I thought, okay, I'm not going to tell anyone what I'm doing. And in those cases, it's not fearlessness. It's just like, there's a certain sense of egotism, I suppose, where you think nothing's going to happen to you until you're in the moment. And then you think, oh, I could probably die. Yeah. I wish I had my phone. Yeah. I wish I had my phone or I wish I had my ID because if there's a drug bust, how am I going to explain that I'm a journalist and not a buyer or something, you know? Um, Uh, fearlessness I think in journalism especially if you cover crime it's you have to be able to look at crime and you have to be able to talk to criminals otherwise you can't be a crime writer and I can you know I'm a crime writer I love I love to cover the mystery of the crime I don't like the blood but I like the I like everything behind it and where did that uh, draw come from for you when did you first realize this do you know I read when I was a teenager I read Helter Skelter uh, about the Charles Manson murders. And in fact, I'm rereading it again because I'm, I'm working on another project about crime scenes and things like that. And I remember reading the book thinking, oh my gosh, it's so, before you even get to the horrible crime, you got to the, I think the book starts out with something like, you know, the valley was silent. You could hear ice in a cocktail glass or something like that. And I was thinking, oh, it's all, the, the crime is all about everything around it and the people who, did it or who were the victims. It's not about the knife wound, generally speaking. It's about so much more. And from that age, I was really, really interested in the psychology of, of, of the criminal mind. I was in, you know, I, I'm fascinated by forensics. I was fascinated, you know, fascinated by the crime scenes and by the, all of that. Um, and then I fortunate enough, I got, you know, I worked as a journalist. I got a job as a journalist and moved to Rome, became your chief for Newsweek magazine. And there were, there are lots of crimes here. I mean, Italy is a very dangerous place for crimes. So in that sense, everything sort of fell together, but I don't fancy myself, um, to be an expert on crime, but I'm really curious about it by, by, you, you talked about how uh, being an American, uh, that was an advantage for you in this one case. Is that generally the case? It, yeah, I mean, there is something to that about the other about the audience. Also, you know, there is a, there aren't a lot of, of North Americans in Italy as journalists anymore. Most of the bureaus have closed. Um, you know, you, you have a lot of European journalists here, but you don't really get a lot of Americans or Canadians necessarily. Um, and when you, so when you do, and you're going to, you're going to put, write a story about someone, people are more interested, I think. And it definitely also, I think 
that there's some way that you can kind of hide behind the language. So I could talk to Pupetta and ask her in my, with my American accent in Italian and ask her questions um, where an Italian would ask them in a different way. So she probably thought, oh, she probably doesn't even understand. She would talk very simply to me and she would be very kind of grandmotherly with me on some level. And I, I do think that I know how to use that to my advantage, let's say, after all these years. I've heard you say that as women seize more control over the criminal underworld, um, that they're proving themselves to be more vicious, more cunning and cutthroat than the men that they're replacing. Yeah, because they know how to damage a family. And at the end of the day, organized crime syndicates all are very heavily involved with their family. They're also very heavily involved with the Catholic Church. There's a, that was a whole nother conversation and perhaps another book. Um, <laughs> but they, there's there's just such an, they, they need the family. These men need the wives, the mothers, the daughters um, to be complicit in, in, in the lie, in covering up for them, in hiding the contraband or in, you know lying about the alibi or whatever. And so the women know how to destroy that. They know how to get, they know they aren't afraid to hurt someone's children because they know how difficult that would be where men kind of stop at that and say, well, anything but the kids, we're not going to kill kids. We're not going to kill kids. And the women are like, yeah, we are. Yeah, we are, you know, and, and it's, a, it's a strange thing, but I think, I, I mean, I think a lot of people would argue that women are more manipulative than men. Um, certainly a lot of men I know would, would argue that women are in general, you know, have a different way of, of looking at things and thinking about things. And when you turn that into in, in a negative light, when it's in a good way, fine. But when it's in a negative light, like organized crime or, or some of the, you know, torture or murder or whatever, I think that women can be better at it, if that makes sense. Well, and I guess that's the way that this story kind of upends the stereotypes that we know about the mafia or we think we know about the mafia from watching the godfather every sunday when it's on uh on television that's right and i think you know um i think a lot of that is because most of the people who've written about the mafia are men mm. and most of the people who have written about the mafia in the context of the italian culture who are men don't necessarily recognize how strong the patriarchal society is on women in the legal community and in women in the illegal community. And so there's this kind of way that they, a lot of them look at it and think, well, you know, of course the man, the men are the stronger they are in the legal community as well, in the legal uh, lifestyle of, of, of Italians. And I think when you look at it differently, when you say, well, actually the women, if you look at the crimes, if you look at the testimonies, especially if you listen to what the turncoats and the, the people, the pentiti, as they're called, um, what they say about inside the organized crime syndicates, you really find out that the women are really, really involved. And I think that a lot of previous looks at this hasn't recognized it because women can't join the group they mm -hmm. can't be initiated into these groups they're they're truly you know good old boys clubs but that doesn't mean they're not involved that just means they don't have the, the card let's say you know? right but but that hasn't changed over time i mean you know when we think of the mafia and the idea of a made man i pull all this information from just martin scorsese movies and so we we think about that but but in 2022 that hasn't changed no I, the, well the, the women are more involved yes but they're, they're more also, involved but they're know, not allowed to to be they're not allowed to, to join no no they're not allowed to join they're not members of they, they cannot be initiated into the Andrangheta or into the Camorra into the Cosa Nostra they cannot be initiated at this point that we know of I mean 
These are secret societies, so maybe there's something that we don't know. You're listening to Barbie Latson Nadeau on The Richard Krause Show. Her book, The Godmother, Murder, Vengeance, and the Bloody Struggle of Mafia Women is available now wherever fine books are sold. Um, but if you look at all the research that's done and you look especially at people who, who have left and talk about what goes on inside, women aren't, aren't allowed at this moment. But in Italian regular society, women aren't allowed to do a lot of things either. So it's just sort of you have to look at the context in which all of this is happening. You know, look at the Catholic Church. Women aren't allowed to join that one either, are they? You know, and you think about all those sorts of 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 groups that are still male dominated that are in this country and are accepted that way this here. When you were writing a book like The Godmother, you're you're writing about the lives of real people, both uh, criminals and victims. And how do you, or do you, I guess, not glamorize the crime? Because this is something that is, I mean, these are fascinating stories. And these are, in some ways, bigger than life stories. And particularly this story has, you know, an added edge because it is the story of the first woman to go to jail for uh, uh, in Italy for a, a mafia related killing. So it's big. It was well covered. How do you avoid making sure that you're not setting this up to be a Bonnie and Clyde style look at a at a glamorous figure? It's, I think it's hard, but I think throughout the book, I, I I admit the challenge of that. I think in several places in the book, I write about wondering whether or not I am glamorizing the, right. these people, why why we're all so interested in it. Is it because people like me write about them? At the, but at the end of the day, I think that the stories need to be told because people don't understand what it's really like. A lot of, a lot of you know, you look at the big murders or you look at the, the, the sensational, you know, dissolving someone in acid in a basement in Rome and all these sorts of things that people, you know, kind of click on or like to hear about. But at the end of the day, the mafia destroys thousands of lives in this country every year. It destroys businesses. There's so much corruption. If there's an earthquake anywhere in this country, oftentimes the reason the buildings collapse is because the construction it has been infiltrated and they're not using the right gravel. They're using beach sand so that they can get around. You know, they're, they're faking, uh, you know, seismic licenses or whatever like that the the infiltration of the mafia in, in government there was just an arrest overnight where they dissolved two entire community uh city halls in southern italy because the mayors and all the council members were 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 mafia were part of the organized crime syndicate were part of the indrangheta it's still very real in this country and that's why i think you can write about a, something historical like pupetta moresca's crimes but I, I hope in t writing about her crime, I'm also telling the story of the fact that the mafia still is a, a danger to this society. And um, every single day, someone dies because of it. Someone's life is ruined because of it. People are killed. People are, you know, the whole, it's, it's hard to understand how much part of the DNA this is in this country. And I think that's important when you write a book like this too. You can focus on the sort of the, the sensational stuff, but at the end of the day, the thread that goes all the way through it, I believe, is 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 importance that people understand that the mafia is not the Sopranos. It's actually what's going down in, in Calabria and people losing their lives and their livelihoods. What has the reaction to the Godmother been in Italy? Is it released there yet? No, it comes out in Italy in uh in november it'll be in italy in november they're working on the translation now i, I think no, everyone will say well everybody knows about her in italy i think it'll be the least you know interesting story ever told in italy because everybody's already heard about her and when she died it was the international press 
that really wrote about her. She was, you know, and the Italian press, it wasn't front page news, but it was big news everywhere else. Here's this woman, you know, this, this, this killer. And, and in Italy, because her story has been told a number of times and it hasn't been told outside of Italy so much, um, you know, people are kind of like, oh, her, oh, she's, oh, she was still alive, you know, that kind of thing. And I think when the book comes out, they'll say, oh, here's an American trying to write about an Italian topic, you know. That was Barbie Latza Nadeau on The Richard Krause Show. Her book, The Godmother, Murder, Vengeance, and the Bloody Struggle of Mafia Women is available now wherever fine books are sold. Big thanks to Barbie for being here today. Also, a big thanks to Nuella Charles, whose self-titled album is now available wherever you buy fine music. Of course, though, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon.